Our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 6. Our primary focus will be verses 4 through 6 this morning. This is the Word of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Lord God, I pray that you will open to us your word and by the power of your spirit working in your church, make these words that we know to be true, genuinely, actively, perceptibly true in us. Accomplish your will in our lives. This morning we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The Bible carries through its pages a lot of running themes. There are things that believers all through the ages are supposed to see and to know. The gospel runs through all the scripture. Whether you're reading the Old Testament or the New, you learn that God is holy, that we are sinners, and that a sacrifice is required for us to be forgiven so that we can enter the presence of God. And we know that Jesus Christ made that sacrifice to welcome us into the family of God. And we enter by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But there are a lot of other themes in the New Testament, aren't there? How many things do you see repeatedly emphasized in book after book? What are some of the things that we see all the way through Scripture as themes or concepts? Like We see that Scripture is authoritative, right? We see worship, that we are called to worship the Lord our God. We see that marriage is a sacred thing. We see that men and women are equal in their worth, but different in their role. We see that sexual immorality dishonors God and destroys people. We see that worship in the local church is a vital part of Christian commitment. We see that every believer can contribute in one way or another to the life and the growth of the church. We see that Jesus Christ will return in victory and we will live with him forever. We see that the gospel is for all people groups, no matter what color you are, no matter what country you're from, without distinction. If I said, hey, why don't you look up some scripture on those points... You could look in any number of places in the New Testament because those are taught over and over and over again as God has chosen to reveal himself and his ways to us. There are things that God repeatedly says to us because he wants to help us understand him and please him. So I want to read to us several verses of scripture now. And I want you to see if you might notice a particularly important theme 
running through the New Testament. I doubt you'll have time to turn to these. You may just want to write the references down. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Then John 17, 11, Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Same chapter, verses 20 through 23 of John 17. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Or Romans 15, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 1.10 I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Or Galatians 3, 26 to 28. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Or Colossians 3, 13 and 14. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Or how about just one more? 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Does anybody smell a theme in those verses? What do they point you toward? What topic do those verses, what theme do those verses pull out for us unity christian unity besides if you have a worship guide for the service you see that unity is in the sermon title so it's kind of cheating if you saw that already right now that list is not exhaustive i could have given you more verses in more places watching god say to you and me over and over again that we are to love one another be kind to one another and be united as one loving family or flock or body or house or temple well not only does scripture 
make it clear to us that unity in the body of Christ is important? Because we agree, don't you, that Scripture just told us unity is important? Doesn't experience tell you that unity is important? How many of you have seen the destructive disaster of division? Because we know when, when Christians are harsh with each other, cruel to each other, unable to be kind to one another, that hurts our witness. Many people have been significantly put off by local churches that just can't get along. Last week, if you were with us, we saw Paul call us to a unifying Christian character. Just after giving us a good deal of teaching about the gospel, about the glorious plan of God, Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul called us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And the first thing that he chose to tell us to do, if we want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, is to develop a character full of traits that will develop unity in the church. Remember that from last week? You are to grow in your humility, gentleness, patience, love, and an eagerness to guard the unity of the Spirit. Five glorious unity-producing character traits. Well, today, we're going to move forward in the call to walk worthy of the calling, and we're going to see from the Word of God seven reasons why unity is so important. Now, here's what's interesting to me, one of the interesting things as we get ready to get started. We're going to see that unity is important even as we see that the church is, in fact, united. Paul does not call us in verses 4, 5, and 6 to make the church into one body. He doesn't call you to develop one hope. Paul says that those things are already true of the church. And the fact that the church is one is why Paul tells you to develop character so that you can bring about Christian unity. Does that sound weird to you? Just think about the idea of sanctification for a moment. How many of you are Christians? Okay, good. Most of you, a few of you. Okay, here's the question. Are you perfect before the Lord or a sinner? Yes. You are simultaneously, if you're a Christian, perfect and a sinner. Because God has imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ to your account. That means all Christians stand perfect before the Lord. So, again, Christian, if you have Jesus, when God looks at you, God sees the perfect record of Jesus Christ. Also, though, all of us know we're living in a fallen world, right? And in our fallen flesh, and we battle our fallen nature. And in that, we repent still. We still strive to put on the righteousness and the perfection that God has said is ours. Well, in much the same way, God tells us that the church is a unity So you and I strive to bring about the unity that is true of the church. 
Let me make one more thing abundantly clear. This is all pregame show, but we do our best. Unity alone is neither a good nor bad thing. There are people who have deep unity and who are deeply in sin. Unity in falsehood, unity in sinful practices, that's not good. The only unity that you and I are to seek, as we see in verse 3 of this chapter, is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity that we say is vital is a oneness of mind and purpose in the things of God, the things inspired by the Spirit of God, the things present in the Holy Scripture. So, as we get started, Christians, understand what God is going to do with you here today. God is calling you, Christian, to Christian unity. There's no surprise there. God has called you to develop character traits that bring about unity in verses 2 and 3. But now, in case you're not understanding how important the calling is that you develop those character traits, the Lord is going to show you that unity is central to true Christian living. Or if I can make this really simple, God is going to tell you unity is a big deal. I will also say to you, last bit sort of prefacing, is that the structure of this passage is really cool. From verses 4 through 6, you see seven times that the Word of God points us to the fact that the church is a unity. It says that when you think of the church and the faith, there is one, 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 one. And in that list of seven ones, there are three things that tie kind of to the Spirit of God and three things that seem to be around the Lord Jesus Christ and one undergirding pointer to God the Father. So the centrality of unity is bound up in seven key truths that are themselves wrapped up in the Holy Trinity, the one true God. Now, if you want sermon points this morning, it's going to be taking note of the seven things that point us to the centrality of Christian unity. So first, verse 4, there is one body. One body. That's a reference to the church, folks. We've seen back in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that the mystery of God is that he's building one people out of the Jews and the Gentiles, peoples who used to be separated from one another and hostile toward each other. Paul said that God worked in Christ to reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, Ephesians 2.16. In Romans 12, in 1 Corinthians 12, later here in Ephesians chapter 4.16, Paul is going to illustrate the call to unity by saying to us that the church is in fact a body and that every individual member of the church is like a part in the body. So without a lot of unpacking, Christian, you've got to realize that you are called to unity. You are called to unity in the church because the church by its nature is one body. You, as a Christian, are commanded by God to serve the body as a member. Just as any organ or any body part has a purpose, so you, as a believer in the Lord Jesus, have a purpose to fulfill in the church of the Lord Jesus. That makes sense, right? How many of you have bodies? Less of you than I thought would. But I can't see you. Maybe, maybe, maybe you don't. Um, how many of you would like right now for parts of your body to take a break? 
Would you, would you like for your heart to decide it's, you know, I'm going to not do this today. Would you like for some of your toes to go somewhere else? What do you want your body parts to do? Their job, right? Together, not fight. You ever have a body where parts are fighting with other parts? That ain't good, is it? Now, we know biblically there is one universal church. You guys understand that, right? All of the forgiven people of all nations throughout all time are part of what we call the church universal. That's actually what the word Catholic means, by the way. I don't mean capital C, Roman Catholic Church Catholic, but that church took its name from the idea of one universal church. So sometimes you see us read the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and we'll say, I believe in one holy Catholic church. We don't mean that we believe in the Roman Catholic church and the Pope. We're saying we believe in the one, the fact that there is one church universally collect or made up of all of those who have ever put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All the people throughout all time who are saved by Jesus are part of the church universal. So you and I are in the one body of Christ along with believers who live in Korea and South Africa and Germany and China and Australia and Israel and Ecuador and everywhere else in the entire world from any time from the dawn of time until any time until the the Lord comes back. We're all part of the one church universal. And because there is one body, you and I would be absolute fools, wouldn't we, to allow ourselves or anyone else to set up barriers between people groups inside that universal body? Would that not be the craziest thing in the world? To pretend like, well, my people group is inside the body here and you people owe us something, so stay away from us. That's ungodly. That's evil. Now, we're all one body. No believer, no group of believers is better than any other group of believers in the body, right? Okay, biblically, we also know that around the globe, the church is present in local congregations or assemblies. Every Christian in the, in, in the city of Las Vegas is not here today. Have you noticed that? Maybe most of them are. I, no, 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 that's not true. That's not true. Don't, don't do that. We, we, we'd have to have a pretty big room, wouldn't we, to be able to hold every Christian gathered in, in this city. We can't all meet in one place and be one family on one Sunday morning easily. But God has always emphasized not only the universal church, but also the church local. And you and I are supposed to see to it that our little congregation. This little gathering right here, including the folks who are sick and aren't with us today, we're a body. You, if you're a member of PRC, you're a part of this body. You have a role to play in the body so that you can help the church be what God wants it to be. Stop, stop, stop. Do you get that? You, 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 you. Did I point at you? Anybody I miss? You, you are a part of this body and you have a job to do to make this church what Christ intends it to be. Do you acknowledge that? That means, first of all, it means you need to be present. You need to be active in helping us to grow. You need to be working to help us better honor the Lord. There is one body. You are in that body and you need to 
you need to shape your life to help this body. Please, Christian, I'm about to take a horrible, a, a dangerous tangent here. Please don't let yourself think that your life is about your life and the body is extra. Your life is to be shaped to strengthen the body. Do you see the difference? All right, I'm going to stop taking attention. I could get there. This church is one body, your body part. What do you think your role is? Don't tell me, by the way, right now. Do you realize you have a role? Have you even thought for a minute about what your role might be? And if you say, well, my role is that of consumer, you're incorrect. How can you, how can you help? Who can you help? What can you do to strengthen the body and make this church a healthier place? What, what do you need to avoid to avoid bringing sickness into the body? All right, we better go on. I will get in trouble. One spirit is the second one. Still with me? One spirit. Not only is the church a single body, all who are part of the church have one and the same Holy Spirit of God. There are not different spirits of God. There is one God, there is one Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God indwells every single believer. So dear Christian, you and I, as different as you and I are, share the same Holy Spirit. All the apostles inspired to pen Holy Scripture share with us the very Spirit who inspired them to record the revelation of God. Now, why is that important? Think about this. What a huge lie is told when we experience disunity in the body because it tells a lie about the Holy Spirit. You and I... If you and I can't be unified, we would present to the world the false idea that the Spirit of God is Himself divided. Is that true that God's Spirit is divided? No. Contextually, by the way, I do think Paul is here still driving home an ethnic point, a racial point. There's not a spirit of God that indwells the Jew and one that indwells the Gentiles. There's not a spirit of God for Israel and a different spirit of God for the Christians in Rome or Ephesus. Paul wants the Ephesians to grasp that you may as well learn to get along with all Christians because all Christians of every color from every nation, all Christians have the very same spirit of God. That message really matters, folks. Because there are people, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to take us too far down this road, but you got to get it. There are some people out there that would say, if your people group has oppressed my people group in the past, we can't be unified unless you pay a penance to me. But the fact that we have one spirit of God that we all share in shows us that that is not the case. Or somebody else might say, hey, if, if your past or your personality is different than mine, we can't be united. But we share the one spirit of God. We're already one. Christian, it's vital that you realize that every other believer in the world who is a genuine believer has the same Holy Spirit as do you. 
And in this church, you need to realize that we share the one spirit of God. And there is no room for us to build walls of division based on preferences or perceived insults or personality differences. We have the one spirit, and that means we have the same value as we're filled by the same God. Let's move on. Third, same hope. One hope. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. We're, caught, we're part of a single body, yes? Two of you agree with me. We are united by the one Spirit of God, yes? yes. All right. And that leads us into one hope. The word hope here, I'll keep telling you, is a certain future that is before us. Hope is not a thing that comes and goes, that may or may not happen. This is not hope like, gee, I hope my football team wins the football game. Hope is a certainty. Hope is the hope of heaven. Hope is a sure promise that will be fulfilled as surely as God is God. So stop and think about the fact that you and I have been called to the same singular hope. That means, dear Christian, that all the believers in the universe and all the believers in this church have the one same hope of the same eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Christian who's a little different than you but still a brother or sister in Christ will live forever in the presence of Jesus just like you will. How might that change the way that you speak to or about a believer with whom you struggle. Christian, there is no such thing as a Christian you just can't get along with. You're going to live eternally with everyone who's in the grace of Jesus, so you might as well start right now learning to love and treasure every believer you can. All right, there's the first triad. One body, one spirit, one hope. Are these potential truths? No, they're just true. They are the true state of God's church. And the Lord wants these things to motivate you to change how you live and to change how you think so that you will live within this unity. Fourth, verse five, one Lord. Here, you know what you're seeing now? So spirit in verse four, you want to guess who the one Lord is? This is the second person of the Holy Trinity. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one Lord over his church. And is there any such thing as division in Christ, folks? No. There's not a Jesus for Jews and a Jesus for Gentiles. There is no such thing as a white Jesus or a black Jesus or an Asian Jesus or a Hispanic Jesus. There is only the one Lord Jesus as there is only the one Holy Spirit. And we tell lies about Jesus when we live in something less than Christian unity. So let's just talk about it for a second. Who is this one Lord? Jesus is God the Son. If you're not a Christian, you want to pay attention to this. There's only one God. The one true God is the Holy Trinity. Three persons as one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Lord mentioned here is Jesus, God the Son. He's the person of the Holy Trinity who came to earth. He became a human being and he accomplished the work of our salvation. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He was utterly sinless from conception through death. And that makes Jesus different than any other human being who ever has lived because he was never in any way tainted by sin. You and I aren't that good. 
Jesus perfectly fulfilled all the perfection that God has ever required by, being act, by his active and his passive obedience. And though Jesus never once sinned, never once, and though Jesus did not earn death for his behavior, Jesus voluntarily walked to the cross and he gave up his life as a sacrificial substitute. While Jesus the Son was on the cross, God the Father punished Jesus, God the Son, for every sin that God will ever forgive. And then Jesus died And then Jesus rose from the grave. And then Jesus ascended to heaven. And the same Jesus I'm talking about is alive right now. And that there is one Lord indicates to you and me that there is only one way for any human being to be saved. In Acts 4, 11 and 12, Peter says it this way. This Jesus is the stone who was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you want to be forgiven by God, believe in Jesus. Turn from your sin. You can't can't cling to your sin, love your sin, and say, oh, and God forgive me of this thing that I'm loving to continue to do. That doesn't work, right? You reject your sin. You turn from your sin. You run to Jesus. You ask Jesus for mercy. You trust in Jesus. You give your life to his rule and command and you will be in the grace of the one Lord. Fifth point. There's one faith. One faith. Now we know, first of all, that everyone who's ever been forgiven is forgiven by God's grace through personal faith in Jesus Christ. And some people would say that that's what's in view here. Maybe they're right, but I don't think so. I think it's more likely here that the reference to there being one faith is a reference to the one genuine truth presented in Holy Scripture. Remember the book of Jude at the end of the New Testament when Jude spoke about basic doctrine of the gospel? Jude said this in Jude 3. He's writing a letter to folks, and he said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude pointed out that there is a faith, one faith, that was once and for all time delivered to the saints. The little letter of Jude at the very end of the New Testament epistle shows us he's got this passionate plea that that any believer who reads his letter would stand strong and even fight to protect the faith i've heard before and i i I can't remember what this the source of this but if you've ever followed are any of you people like interested in like the british royal family pay attention to the kings and the princes and the, the queen and the princes and all those people I don't, so I'm not good at it, but some of you are weird. Um, (laughs) Whenever a monarch is sworn in in England, they're referred to, because of the Anglican Church, as the defender of the faith. Interestingly, did you know that um, Prince Charles has already said if he is sworn in, he will not say that because he's not a believer, but he said he will be the defender of faith. Not the faith, but Faith. 
that makes him a defender of nothing. But the word of God says that we are to do battle for the faith because as the church there is one faith. Christians, this is a really important thing for you and me to remember as we discuss Christian unity. There is a faith, a faith that has been delivered by God through the scriptures to you and me. And we're united in that faith. And as I said in the beginning of the message, not all unity is good, right? The only unity that will honor the Lord is unity in the word of God. Now there's many people out there from many other churches who would tell you that a focus on doctrine or doctrinal issues harms unity. And folks, you can hurt the unity of the church if you make a central doctrinal focus on issues that are secondary issues where genuine faithful believers can disagree. You know what I mean? Maybe it's how you personally observe or think about the issue of Sabbath. Maybe it's disagreeing over the order of events related to the return of Jesus. Maybe it's differing on whether you believe it is wisest or best or good for a Christian to consume alcohol. Issues like that. If you make those primary issues, if you speak about those issues in such a way that you demean other believers who see those issues differently than you, you will harm the faith. You will harm the unity of the body. But we must understand with that said, Christians, that there is no unity apart from unity in the gospel. If a person denies the gospel, we cannot have unity with them. If a person denies key doctrines of who God is or what the gospel is or what the church is or what God-honoring morality is, we cannot have unity. And when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, remember, he called those, those folks to unity. When Paul wrote about the Lord's Supper, he particularly called the people to be united in the one body of Christ. Yet Paul also acknowledged in 1 Corinthians that there would be divisions so long as people live and behave in ways contrary to Scripture. 1 Corinthians 11 verses 18 and 19 says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. I love the way Paul says, I, I just picture a funny tone when he says this. I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. We do not promote unity at the expense of doctrine. We never turn away from the Bible so as to avoid division. We never love division, but we must have unity within the one faith. Then Paul adds at the end of verse 5, one baptism. One baptism. That's perfectly in line with the things that have been said, right? There's one body, there's one hope, there's one faith, there's one church. And all of us who are part of the Lord's church are claiming 
unity and identification with the one Lord Jesus Christ. We're claiming unity in the one Spirit of God. We're claiming the one true God as our Father. And if there's only one way of salvation, and if there is only one church, and if, as it is true throughout history, baptism is understood as the entry point into the church, then we must grasp that there's only one baptism. The New Testament never, ever speaks of a person coming to faith in Jesus Christ and choosing to remain unbaptized. When a person believes, what do we see them do in the New Testament? They follow that belief, the belief which brings them in by God's grace into the church universal. We see them follow that belief immediately with baptism. And the outward ceremony of baptism is given as a sign of the spiritual change that has taken place in the life of the believer. Now, baptism, like Lord's Supper, it's an ordinance of the church. It is commanded by Jesus that we practice it until he returns. When a person comes to faith in the Lord Jesus, we help them express that faith and its implications through a sacred ceremony. We call it baptism. What do we do? We lower a person into the water. You you, you dunk them, um, which gets you wet if you're the pastor, just so you know. We lower a person down into the water, and in that doing, we signify a couple things. Lowering somebody into the water reminds us both that Jesus died and was buried, as well as the fact that a person is saying, who used to be me, the old man, is now dead to sin. And when we raise the person back up out of the water, we are signifying the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He came up and out of the grave. And the new believer is now walking around as a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He's alive in Christ. Now, you probably know we have Presbyterian brothers and sisters, people we love and respect very much. But unlike our Presbyterian brethren, we do not baptize unbelieving children. Why? We don't teach you that the covenant people of God contains people who are not yet believers in Christ. We offer baptism to those who confess Christ as their Savior. Now, if, by the way, you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, but have not submitted to baptism, I would urge you, let one of the elders know, We would be thrilled to set up a time for you to follow Jesus in this sweet and sacred ceremony. And if it's this time of year, we might even try to do it indoors. (laughs) Actually, you know, I got a note from the folks at uh, First Baptist Church of the Lakes the other day. They were saying that they were going to do a baptism. Like, you guys have any people that you want to baptize too? We'll have water in the tub. So I thought that was very sweet of them. If you need to be baptized, come let us know. Now, This statement in verse 5, it's not really, this is not Paul making an argument about what the nuts and bolts of baptism look like. He just says one baptism. But what he's telling us is about what baptism is ultimately to represent, right? Baptism at its fundamental level is a ceremony that signifies a person's entry into the church, into the covenant people of God. And All Christians are supposed to experience baptism, and all Christians are to be united with and identified with Christ. That's what's in view. One baptism reminds us that there is one church and we are to develop the character to protect the unity of that one church. And then finally, verse 6, Paul writes that there is one God and Father 
of all, who's over all and through all and in all. So we've seen reference to the Spirit. We've seen reference to the Lord who is God the Son. Now we see, as Paul ties a nice little bow on the package here of these verses, that there is only, after all, there's after all only one God the Father. And when Paul says that God is Father of all, what's he mean? Is Paul saying every person on earth, Christian or non-Christian, can claim to be part of the fatherhood of God, that God's their father? No, he's not saying that. Do you remember that when Jesus was walking the earth, there were religious teachers who rejected Jesus and Jesus made it very clear that God was not their father? In John 8, 43 and 44, here's what Jesus said to the religious teachers. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and was, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Not gentle from Jesus right there. God is Father to all who are in Christ. And for all who have God as their Father, we know that God is the Father of all believers. Those who look like us and those who don't look like us. Those who act like us and those who don't act like us. God is over all. He's through all. He's in all. The universe is God's. God is over every bit of it. God rolls over over all of creation. God is present everywhere in creation. I'm not saying some sort of weird pantheism. God is not somehow contained in the wood. God is, however, omnipresent. He is everywhere, through all. God is in all. God is accomplishing everything for his glory, out of his sovereign will, for his glory. God is using everything he's made and everything that he brings to pass to accomplish his will. So again, are you a Christian? Then you are family with all believers in the world, past, present, and future. You have one Father. You have one Lord and Savior. You share in one Spirit of God. And that has to change the way that you live and how you treat other Christians. God has called us who know Jesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And the first thing he tells us in this command is to do everything we can to do whatever it takes to walk in unity in the faith. How do we do that? We develop humility, gentleness, patience. We love one another and bear with one another and we eagerly pursue unity, verses two and three. Now, do we compromise biblical doctrine? No, There will be times that different Christians will divide over doctrinal interpretation or worship practices or basic Christian morality. That's going to happen. But when division occurs, it ought to be painful to our souls because division tells a lie about the church. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. We want to live to tell that truth to the world and to one another. So here's the thing, folks, as we close. I urge you, if you don't know Jesus, I want you to come to Jesus today. You need to be under the grace of Christ, have the Spirit of God under the fatherhood of the Lord. If you want to know how to do that, I'd love to just come talk to me afterwards. Come find another believer who looks like they might know what they're doing and say, hey, how do I, how do I follow Jesus? How do I become a Christian? We'll try to help you. If you do know Jesus, I urge you, love Jesus and love his church. 
Develop a unifying character that tells the truth about the one gospel and the one church. Pursue unity in the spirit. Look for how you can be an active, faithful part of the body, one whose life is reshaped so that you play your role. Pursue unity in the spirit, in the scripture, for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that the church is, in fact, a unity. Thank you that you, that you haven't called us to build one body, but to live with a character that proves that the church is one body. But Lord, I pray this for every last one of us, that you will teach us how, in fact, to live unified. And that may mean for some of us in this room that we put off attitudes that we have. It may mean that we put off the way that we speak and change it. It may mean that we put off the way that we would undermine Christian unity. For others, it may mean that we come with a renewed commitment not to miss not to miss services not to miss not to miss gathering together unless we're providentially hindered or that we are committed to not only showing up and soaking up a sermon but that we're committed to actively encouraging and growing others or sharing the gospel and helping others to come to be part of the church, that we, that we look for the ways that you would use us in the body to bring glory to your name. God, I pray that you'll show each of us a thing to start doing, to stop doing, to magnify you best. And God, I pray overall that you will take this church and you will use us as a beautiful <laughs> depiction of the one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, faith, one baptism, one Father over all. God, be magnified in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.